Look at verse 1 of Judges chapter 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? In this period of the Judges, the marking point is the death of Joshua. Joshua marked a remarkable continuity with God's work in the past. You see, Israel had lost that critical link in its godly leadership. Moses was the great leader used by God to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Joshua was Moses' assistant, who God used to actually bring the people into the promised land. And Joshua appointed no specific leader after him to carry on the work and to guide the whole nation. So after the death of Joshua, they were in a critical place where they were trusting God more intensely than they had to ever before, or at least they were put in that place where they had to do it. And it all happened, as it says right there in verse 1, after the death of Joshua. Friends, this period of the Judges, the next many chapters that we'll be considering together over a Wednesday night, it covers some 340 years. Think about that for a minute. That's much longer than the United States of America has been an independent nation. And during this period of the judges, there was no standing office of national leadership. Israel had no king. They had no president. They had no prime minister on earth. All they had was a God in heaven who cared for them when they would look unto him. Now, during these 340 years, God would bring forth a leader for the nation at a critical time. And for the most part, these leaders would rise up, do his work, or in some occasions, her work, and then return back to obscurity. And this required that the people of Israel keep a real abiding relationship with God. You see, the chaos and the crisis and the turmoil and everything around them in the period of the judges, it it compelled them to do what we often don't do when everything's right. When everything's easy, we find it easy to forget about God, right? We have to say these difficult times, the chaotic times, the perilous times, they compel people to trust in God. And that's exactly what happened during the days of the judges. Now, The national leaders, the deliverers that God raised up from time to time, they they, they didn't come to leadership through royal succession. They weren't kings or princes. And they were specifically gifted by God for leadership in their times. And the people of God, generally speaking, recognized and respected that gifting. You see, when this book uses the term judge, it isn't referring to someone who sits in a court and decides a legal issue. The Hebrew word that's translated judge, shafat, it has more the idea of a heroic leader. It's derived from a word that means to put right and to rule. It's someone who comes, and if I could say it in this way, saves the day, sets things right. During this period of time, 
the people of Israel had tremendous obstacles facing them. They were surrounded by other nations that lived in the most terrible immorality and idolatry. And it was a constant temptation to the Israelites to fall into the same sins. The the, the idolatrous lives of the Canaanites who were around them were focused on three main things. Do you know what the Canaanites were obsessed with? The Canaanites were obsessed with sex, with money, and with having a relationship with the gods on their terms instead of on God's terms. That sounds familiar, does it, today? (laughs) Friends, idolatry hasn't changed one bit. We dress it up. We put a little bit more sophistication and gloss upon it today. But idolatry is essentially the same today as it was back in these ancient days of Israel. You see, the book of Judges shows us a time that's sometimes difficult, sometimes very dark. And for this reason, many people neglect the book of Judges. Friends, I don't want to startle anybody, but we're going to be going through some things in the book of Judges that, well, let me put it, if you were to actually make a movie, I talk about the movie running ahead, there's going to be times where you're going to want to suspend the movie running in your head. And we're not going to want to think in such vivid terms about exactly what happens in the book of Judges. And for that reason, some people regard this as sort of the dark ages of Israel's history. But I'll tell you this, if you neglect this book, you neglect a wonderful account of the love and graciousness of God and how God lovingly corrects his people. When a nation goes astray... When a nation seems to forget about God and put its focus on money and sex and individual gratification of all kinds, when a nation does that, it needs the correction of God. And it's not necessarily the wrath of God that brings His correction. No, friends, in another way, it is the love of God that brings His correcting hand. Now, what we find out about man in the book of Judges is depressing. But what we find out about God is wonderful. If you take it on the human side, it's the story of disobedience. It's the story of disaster. But on the divine side, it's the story of God's continued love and direction and deliverance for Israel. So let's pick it up again, starting at verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. You see here in verse 1, the children of Israel did the right thing. They asked of the Lord. How many of our problems just simply go back to that? We neglect to ask the Lord, right? If we do ask the Lord, it goes something like this. Okay, Lord, I've got my plan. Now I ask you to bless it. Instead, the children of Israel did what they should do. They asked the Lord and said, Lord, what should we do? How should we be guided? Where shall we go? They did the right thing, the thing that Joshua would have wanted them to do. With Joshua gone, they were not left without a leader. They simply were called to a renewed trust in God and to say, God, you be our leader. And in verse 2, it tells us what the Lord did. The Lord said, the Lord spoke to them. When Israel sought the Lord, he guided them. And friends, that's a consistent pattern throughout the book of Judges. And I pray tell, it's a consistent pattern in your life and my life as well. When you seek God, God will guide you. God never failed to deliver. He never failed to help Israel when they sought him. That's what we need to do as well, right? Seek the Lord. 
God guided them right there in verse 2. It says, Judah shall go up. God directed that the tribe of Judah, the tribe that the Messiah would come from, should lead the way in this fight. You see, God had declared to Israel that all the land of Canaan, marked out by specific boundaries, that this land belongs to you. I have given it to you as an inheritance from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you tribes of Israel being the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. This land is yours. Now, somehow the memo didn't quite get out to the Canaanites that the land belonged to Israel. And God had determined that the Israelites should drive out the Canaanites. That brings up a lot of interesting historical and theological questions that we won't get into this evening. I trust we'll get into them in another section in the book of Judges. But let me just say, this was their solemn responsibility to take possession of what God had already given to them. I'll say it again. It was to take possession of what God has already given to them. Friends, I don't know if you sense that there's some analogy to this in your spiritual life. Do you understand that the Bible says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ? The book of Ephesians says that. What has God given you? Everything you need. What do you possess? I dare say that for every one of us in this room, it's somewhat less than what God has given us, right? Are we not, by spiritual analogy, in the same place that the Israelites were in? God says, here's the land. I've given it to you. It's yours. Now, it's not going to be yours without a fight. You're going to have to go out and conquer the land. But I will be with you, and I will win the victories through you, and I have a purpose for making it difficult at times. Nevertheless, it's yours. I have given it to you. Now you must simply possess it. Under the leadership of Joshua, God had broken the back of Canaanite military strength, yet it remained for each individual tribe to actually go in and possess what God has given to them. Friends, I believe, I believe that God has given to every believer, and I'll just throw out two things, just two things. I believe God has given to every believer, let's say, peace and power, right? Would you not say that it's the birthright of every believer in Christ Jesus? Peace and power. He's given it to you. But there are times and there are seasons in life where you, just like the Israelites, God has given it, but you must enter in and possess it, just as the tribes had to possess the land at this present time. So how did they do it? Verse 3. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites to their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Does that sound gross? You've seen nothing yet in the book of Judges. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table of I've done, and God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. You see it there in verse 3? Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me. Now, this is beautiful. 
the leader of the tribe of Judah acted very wisely. By partnering with another tribe, the work was much easier. It's a beautiful time, these early years in the book of Judges, where the tribes of Israel, at least Judah and Simeon, they work together. They function in the same way that God wants the body of Christ to function, as a body, with each part of the body helping one another out. One says, hey, help me, and we can do the work together, and it can be much better, and we'll go out and conquer the land. And that's exactly what they did. And what did it happen? Verse 4, the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They sought the Lord. They received his guidance. They worked together as a body. It always produces wonderful results in the Lord. And their success was plain to see. It says that the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hands. Matter of fact, verse 4 says that they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. The, the, the place where they conquered was called Bezek. And the leader of the city was called Adonai Bezek. You know what that name means? Lord of Lightning. Doesn't that sound like a scary guy? Oh my heavens, we're fighting against the Lord of Lightning. That's an enemy with a fearful name, but Judah and Simeon defeated him just the same, right? We don't care if you're the Lord of lightning. We serve the Lord who made the lightning and everything else. And they found him in Bezek, it says in verse 5. By the way, the word found there describes a hostile encounter that the armies of Judah and Simeon, they just didn't stumble over Adonai Bezek. They found him. They searched him out. They grabbed hold of him. And their punishment of him described in verse 6, that might seem cruel, cutting off his thumbs and his big toes, right? But actually, verse 7 tells us that Adonai Bezek himself recognized that it was just justice, right? He had done that to 70 others And so now God was just repaying him for what he did. Now he was worthless as a warrior. He could trouble Israel no more as a military man. Well, Israel keeps rolling with their victories. Look at the tribe of Judah, what they did, starting at verse 8. It says, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirath Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name Debir was formerly Kirjas Sephir. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirath Sephir and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Achsa as a wife. By the way, do, do you know the secret to pronouncing all these difficult biblical names? Just a little secret between you and I. All you got to do is say them with confidence. I have no idea the correct pronunciation. Right? But I bet there's more than a couple people here going, wow, he must know how these names are. I don't really know. I'm just reading it and guessing it out as good as you. So, like, you know, but you say it with some confidence. People think they know what you're talking about. Going on. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as a wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. 
And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went in with their brother Simeon. And they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah. And they utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory. Ashkelon with its territory. And Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. And they drove out the mountaineers. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland. Because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Well, it's a long section. Let's go back and sort of look at some of the highlights. Look at verse 8 there, where it says that Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. Here it is recorded that the city of Jerusalem fell to Judah. It was occupied for a time, but it later fell back to the Jebusites, who held it until the leadership of David some 400 years later. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it comes back under Israel's control. But notice verse 10 also says that then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwell in Hebron. Judah also conquered Hebron, that that, that city that was given to Caleb and his family, according to Joshua chapter 15. But then in verse 15, there's something really wonderful there. Did you see this? Caleb's daughter, Aksa, she comes along asking her father for a special request. What does she say right there in verse 15? She asks for a blessing and she says, So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Just sort of out of the blue, this daughter Aksa comes and asks her father, Give me the springs. Now, I don't have to tell you what a precious possession springs of water were. I mean, if you could find Israel, excuse me, water in that generally arid land of Israel, oftentimes you had to dig down deep for a well, right? A spring bubbles the water right up. A spring is a very precious commodity. And she was bold enough to go and ask her father and say, I want those springs of water. Please give them to me. Now, I don't want to shock anybody, but Charles Spurgeon preached the most wonderful sermon just on this one verse. It was titled, Aksa's Asking a Pattern of Prayer. And Spurgeon in that sermon showed how this request from a daughter, Aksa, to a father, Caleb, it gives a sort of a parable of prayer, he called it. I mean, he said that Aksa was a good example because she thought about what she wanted before she went to her father. Isn't that a great analogy for our prayer life? Friends, listen, before you pray, think about what you're going to say before God. Have you ever thought of actually doing that? Of actually thinking before you pray? It's really helpful. You should try it sometime. No, seriously, I mean, think, okay, I want to pray for this and this, and I want to ask God about this, and oh, and I really need help with this. So often, we go into prayer without the slightest bit of forethought. Aksa didn't do that. She asked, and she asked with thinking behind it, but she also asked for help with her request. She asked her husband. It says there that she urged him to ask her father for a field. She wanted some help. Hey, what should I ask my father for? She asked her husband this. Now listen, if you ever need help in knowing what to pray for, ask me, I'll tell you to pray for me. (laughs) If you're done, if you just can't think of anything else that you could pray for, I'll tell you, I can always give you something to pray for. Pray for me, pray for this congregation, pray for our pastors, pray for our ministries, 
pray more and more and more. You never have to feel that you run out of things to pray for. If you do, it'll do you good and it'll get me a blessing and I'll be very happy for it. Now, Aksa is a good example because she went humbly to her father, yet very e- eagerly. Aksa's prayer was a good example because her father asked her what she wanted. You know, God's going to ask you the same thing. What do you want, my son? What do you want, my daughter? What can I give to you? And if our heart is filled with the will and the wishes of God, it'll flow right out of us. Aksa's prayer was a good example because of what she prayed. Her prayer was simply, give me a blessing. Did you know that it's perfectly fine for you to pray that before God? I don't know how often you ask God to bless you. But listen, friends, please remember, when you ask God to bless you, just please don't ask it in a selfish way. Ask God this, God, bless me that I may be a blessing to others. Do you know that that prayer is answered by God and it cheers his heart so wonderfully. Lord, bless me that I may be a blessing to others. But don't be afraid to ask God and to expect God to bless you. Axel's prayer was a good example because she mingled gratitude with her petition. She said, you've already given me land in the south and now give me the springs. Listen, when you're asking God, why don't you thank him for what he's already given to you? You see, she used past blessing as a reason to ask for more. And do you want to know how wonderfully God blessed her? I should say Caleb blessed Aksa's prayer. She said, give me the springs. He said, I'll give you the lower springs and I'll throw the upper springs in as well. You're getting them both, girl, because you are bold enough to ask and God loves it when we are bold enough to ask. Do you understand? Her father, Caleb, was not critical of her request one bit. He rejoiced in the fact that she asked for big things from him. It's just a beautiful analogy right there. Anyway, it goes on. Notice here, verse 19 sort of introduces a dark note into the text. In verse 19, we read, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. You see, friends, as impressive as Judah's victory was, it was nevertheless incomplete. They could not defeat the nations that had the latest military technology, and that latest military technology were chariots of iron. Doesn't that seem strange to you? We found it. We have found the weapon that God cannot defeat, chariots of iron, right? Now, isn't that strange? Friends, think for a moment. Was it any more difficult for God to defeat the chariots of iron? Not a bit. Then why was it more difficult? Is it not so that for some reason the chariots of iron intimidated the faith and the trust in the Lord that the people of Judah had? Now, I don't mean to be critical of the people of Judah because they stand as people who were more outstanding in their faith than others were in their time. We see them conquering more and accomplishing more than many others. Nevertheless, we're left with the impression that they could have and they should have done even more. You see, this speaks more to Judah's lack of full trust in the Lord than it does to Canaanite military superiority. Chariots were no problem for God's people when they were trusting God. Listen, didn't the Egyptians have a lot of chariots when they were chasing the Israelites out of Egypt? You bet they did. God had no problem with those chariots, didn't he? Then later on in the book of Judges, we're going to see under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, we're going to see them win a great victory over a lot of chariots. 
You see, their attitude should have been what was later reflected in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, where the psalmist says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's more powerful than any chariot. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said this, If they had believed in God and gone forth in his name, the horses soon would have fled, and indeed as they did when God gave his people faith. When Barak led the way with Deborah, then they smote Jabin, who had 900 chariots of iron. The imperfection of their faith laid in this, as it may do in yours, my brethren, that they believed in one promise of God, but they did not believe another. There's a kind of faith that is strong in one direction, but utter weakness if it is tried in other ways. I don't want to get too far afield and make too much of a spiritual analogy of this, but I can't resist just asking you and asking myself, what's the chariot of iron in your life? You've just accommodated yourself to you, haven't it? Well, look, I've been able to overcome other things in the Lord. I've been able to deal with other sins and other sinful habits, but this one, ah, chariot of iron, I can't do it. Listen, you're right. You can't do it. But are you going to look me in the eye and tell me that the Lord cannot defeat your chariot of iron? He certainly can. Does anybody think that that, that God can't do with it sin what he's done with others in your life? Listen, that sin, and I'll quote Spurgeon again, that sin must die or you will perish by it. Depend upon it, Spurgeon said. That sin which you would save from slaughter, it will slaughter you. That's what ended up happening with these things that Israel left behind in the promised land. Now, in great contrast to the sadness of Judah's area of compromise there, look at the contrast in verse 20. You look at Caleb. It says, Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Do you know what the sons of Anak were? They were... Big, huge guys, giants, right? I mean, big, huge, like pro-wrestler kind of guys, right? Big, I mean, just massive, dudes, fearful guys. And who was it that drove out these sons of Anak? Caleb. Now, what do you know about Caleb at this stage in his life? This guy is old. He is the last surviving member of, of the generation that came out of Egypt. Everybody else who came out of Egypt was dead, including Joshua. Caleb, the last old guy, and what does he do? He comes up with his walking stick or whatever it was, and he, I don't know what he did. I would have loved to see that fight, man. I would have loved to see Caleb push out the sons of Anak from their territory. Isn't that glorious? Those men were large and fierce warriors, but with God's help, Caleb defeated them, and that's also recorded in Joshua chapter 15. It's almost to rebuke them, right? Listen, you you men of Judah, you, you were afraid of the chariots of iron. Look at what this old man Caleb is doing, right? Look at what he can do when he can trust the Lord. God can use unlikely people, people who the world is written off as being too old or too weak or too fable, feeble or, or just too strange. And God can use them in an amazing way. Well, that's the story of what God did through the tribe of Judah. Let's take a quick survey of the other tribes, starting here at verse 21. 
It's pretty sad, to tell you the truth. Verse 21, But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now that's a case where the battle had been won, right? The battle had been won. Benjamin just had to go there and mop it up. That they had to enter into what was already theirs. It certainly would take effort, but the critical battle was over. Jerusalem belonged to them, but they didn't take it. And the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem, even up until the time of the writing of the book of Judges. They lived in constant military and spiritual danger because of the Canaanites around them. Going on, verse 22. And the house of Joseph also went against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we'll show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. Well, that's good, right? These tribes of Joseph, they did their thing. And this man helped them, and they showed mercy to the man. Very possibly remembering the whole story of Rahab. It reads a little bit like that. A guy helps him conquer the city. They show mercy to him. The guy goes to the Hittites, and he founds a city there. Wonderful for him. Its name is Luz. Great. Good on the tribe of Joseph. By the way, it's sort of unusual how it describes the house of Joseph. Because the house of Joseph would include two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's sort of an interesting phrasing that it uses there in verse 22. However, look at what it says of Manasseh in Ephraim, verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. By the way, Beth Shean, that's one of the sites that you go to on an Israel tour. One of the best. It is so unbelievably cool, the ruins there. I'm not going to say anymore, just, oh man. One of my favorite places to visit. And I'm so excited to go to Beth Shean when we go to Israel in November. Because I haven't been there for a long time, and they have uncovered so much more stuff. It's going to be a, wow. Anyway, they failed to drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so that Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Did you see what it says there in verse 27? You see, prior to that, it says, oh, they didn't drive them out of land here. They didn't drive them out of land here. They didn't drive them out of land. Was that okay with God? What did God tell them? I've given you the land. Now make a bunch of peace treaties with the people of Canaan and live there with them. Instead, what was their attitude? Well, we'll do it, but it's so hard to do it. In verse 27, the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. You see, at first... There were pockets of Canaanites that these tribes were unable to push out of the land. But when the tribes grew strong enough to drive them out, they compromised with those Canaanites, Canaanites, I should say, and they found that they could use them to advantage. Look at what the text says. It says that they put the Canaanites under tribute. 
At first is, well, we're too weak to drive them out. Then when they became strong enough to do it, they said, you know, we can make a little bit of money off of these Canaanites. We can use them as our servants, as our slaves. Oh, but won't you be corrupted by their practices and their immorality and their idolatries? Well, that's a small price to pay for a little bit of financial gain. It says there in verse 28 that they did not completely drive them out. And friends, this is a tremendous analogy to the Christian life. When somebody first begins their Christian life, they may not yet be strong enough in the Lord to deal with all the things that need changing. Yet as they grow in the Lord, they must not be slack in dealing with those areas. I'll speak boldly here this evening, because I know that there's many people here, you're you're saints who have walked with the Lord for a long time. You've walked with the Lord for 10 years for 15 years, for 20 years. And I'll speak to you as I'll speak to myself. And I'll say to us both, both to you and to me, shame on you. You you tolerate sins and compromises in your life that you just have no business tolerating. Oh, if you were a year or two old in the Lord, we might say, well, look, they're just not very strong in the Lord yet. But what about you? You've grown strong enough in the Lord. It's not that you don't know how to walk in victory. It's not that you don't know how to walk in greater holiness. You know that Jesus is your holiness. You know that he's your focus. You know that you need to abide in him and put your focus on him and live a life that flows out. You know these things. Your problem is you just don't want to. You made a peace treaty with those Canaanites, so to speak, in your life. You maybe even thought that they can be useful to you. Shame on me. Shame on you. It should not be so in the body of Christ. You see, we're never to make a peace treaty with our sins. Instead, we are to be determined to drive them out. Oh, but the Canaanites are determined to dwell in the land. That means nothing to the Lord of hosts. You see, here's the fact. Those Canaanites have no right to be there. That land belonged to the Lord God, and he had given it to his people. And can I say that your body, your soul, your spirit, your entire being is the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. And I, I, listen, if you're young in the Lord, I'll give you a free pass, right? But let's just speak to those here this evening who are more mature among us. And honestly speaking, we look in that mirror of self-reflection and we say, we have no excuse. We should be beyond these things. It's a great challenge that comes to us tonight from this passage. Verse 30, the words ring true again. It says, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalah. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. You see, each tribe had its own responsibility and its own battles to fight. In this particular battle, the tribe of Zebulun failed to take possession of what God had portioned for them. So what was the result? The Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. You see, 
The people of Zebulun thought that they could make their incomplete obedience work to their advantage, especially economically. They failed to appreciate that the Canaanites that dwelt among them would eventually bring them into spiritual and social crisis. Now, here's the thing. The presence of the Canaanites among them didn't bring them into immediate crisis. And they, just like me, just like you, we have this tendency to think that because the crisis is not immediate, it's not real. Now, I don't want to speak in too much of a politically charged way this evening, but I'll say this. I'll say that there are many people in our nation who feel that there's a debt crisis in our nation, right? What can I tell you? That crisis didn't come overnight. It was built slowly and slowly and steadily, and sure, it took big jumps here and there, but the whole effect has been building for a long, long time. And one day you suddenly realize we're in bondage to debt. It can happen to a nation. It can happen to a family, right? can happen in regard to sin. It can happen in regard to compromise. You see, because the crisis isn't immediate, we often think that it's not real, but it's certain, and only a trusting obedience to God can spare us from the cycle of crisis that marks the book of Judges. Verse 31 nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or Akzib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. You see that in verse 31? Nor did Asher drive them out. It's a sad story of failure. This tribe didn't drive them out. That tribe didn't drive them out. They also failed to take what God had apportioned for them. Each tribe who failed made it easier for the other tribes who failed, right? When the tribe of Asher looked at the tribe of Zebulun, well, the tribe of Zebulun didn't drive out all the Canaanites, and they didn't fall off the face of the earth. So I guess we can do the same thing. And it builds collectively to we have this remarkable statement in verse 32. Did you see that remarkable statement? So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. Now, if you look back at verse 30, look back at verse 30, It says that the Canaanites dwelt among them. The Canaanites dwelt among the people from Zebulun. But with the Asherites, the Asherites dwelt among the people of Canaan. They suffered an even worse degree of social and spiritual decline. It was as if in the territory of Asher, they just said, Hey, this is Canaanite ground. You people from the tribe of Asher, you may live here. But everybody knows this ground belongs to us, the Canaanites. Verse 33. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. You you see, the tribe of Naphtali found it difficult to counter the, the difficult trend of the other tribes. The defeat of one affects the condition of others. I'll say it again. The defeat of one affects the conditions of others. When you and I are tempted to sin, often the devil will whisper something into our ears. He'll whisper something like this. 
You're only hurting yourself. It's okay. Don't ever believe that lie. You're not only hurting yourself. Each tribe that compromised had a ill effect on the other tribes who found it so much easier to compromise along the same lines. I need to make an important point here. You might say, listen, it must have been so hard for them to cast out all those people. Why was it so hard? Can I fill you in on a little bit of secret here? God meant it to be hard to conquer the land. God never intended for Israel to conquer the land of Canaan easily. He never intended for it to happen quickly. Look at here, Exodus chapter 23, verse 29. Look at this verse. It says, Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Friends, can you impress those words upon your soul just for a moment from Exodus chapter 23? Little by little, you'll conquer the land. Now, I know what I want in my life, right? I want one big night of total surrender to the Lord, right? I want it to happen all in one night. And from that night, everything else is surrendered and easy. You know what God says to me? Little by little, you'll conquer the land, David. Little by little, you'll stay with it. You've got to keep with it or it'll come back upon you. But little by little, that's how you'll conquer the land. Not all at once. Oh, occasionally there'll be a big jump or a big victory. But overall, it's marked little by little. God planned for Israel to take the land through constant trust in him and by frequent battles. And they failed to do this. And therefore, they did not drive out the inhabitants. It was almost as if Israel said this. You ready? All right, prepare your hearts for a little bit of conviction here. All right? It's almost as if Israel said this. If I can't have it easy, then I don't want it at all. You say, well, why, why isn't it more easy to overcome certain things in the Christian life? Friend, don't you realize that God uses the difficulty to mold your heart and to shape your character and to draw you closer to him? If it were easy, you wouldn't be as close to the Lord. And so God has deliberately engineered some things. I'm not saying everything. But he's deliberately engineered some things in your Christian life to be, well, difficult. Let's stop complaining about it and trust God even more in the midst of it, right? Here's the great news. Little by little, we will conquer the land, right? Oh, it'll happen little step by little step, but we will conquer the land that way. We have the victory in our victorious general, Jesus Christ who's already won the battle for us. Do you rest in that truth? He's already won the battle for us. And now we just conquer what he's already won for us. And so they dwelt among the Canaanites, verse 33. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. The same story. Now, verse 34, the tribe of Dan. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell at Mount Heres, in Ahilon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim 
from Selah and upward. Verse 34, there you see, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. What? Being pushed around by the Canaanites? You see, this is how it always works. At first, it's, well, you Canaanite, you can live here and live among us. That's all right. Before too long, the Canaanites are pushing you around, correct? This is how it works. But when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. And then verse 36 uses a dreadful phrase. It says, the boundary of the Amorites. The end result was that the Amorites had an appointed boundary within the inheritance of God's people. Now listen, that's an unnecessary and a dangerous accommodation to the social and spiritual enemies of the people of God. Friends, there is a dangerous and seductive form of pacifism in the Christian life. A pacifism which ignores the reality of the spiritual battle that's so clearly described throughout the Bible, especially in passages like Ephesians chapter 6, and it's referred to by analogy in the book of Judges. This pacifist attitude will happily make a peace with the devil that basically says this, Okay, devil, I won't harm your interests if you leave me mostly alone. Can I tell you that that attitude of spiritual surrender is absolutely unacceptable for the Christian? I heard this testimony from some people before. They said something like this. You know what? Every time I get serious about walking with the Lord, and every time I try to get right with Him, I come under all this spiritual attack. So what, what do you do? Well, I just am not so serious about walking with the Lord or serving Him. Oh, great. (laughs) This is your solution to the battle. Well, you know, every time I fight against the the man who holds me in bondage, he gets all angry. So what do you do? Well, I just let him keep me in bondage. Never. Never should it be this way with us. Leon Trotsky, the infamous communist leader, he said at least one correct thing. He said this, and I'll quote him here. He said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. That rings true spiritually. To take an attitude of spiritual surrender is to willingly lose that war. Now, at this period in Israel's life, the tribes of Israel, at their best, experienced an incomplete victory. At worst... They simply surrendered to and accommodated the enemy. Friends, this makes us value the glorious victory of Jesus Christ on our behalf more than ever. There was nothing incomplete in Jesus' victory. There was no accommodation in his battle with the devil at the cross, right? He defeated principalities and powers. Jesus Christ has won the victory on our behalf. Now he looks to you and he looks to me and he says, you come and live in my victory. Let me be your conqueror. Let me be the one who leads you. And that's where we leave it here this evening. Looking to Jesus to help us conquer and to appropriate what he's given us in our Christian life. Father, We can't read about these dark days of the judges 
so filled with human frailty and darkness without simply saying, Lord, we need you. Almost wish we could look in a detached way and say, Lord, all those Israelites, but Lord, we know it's us. I know it's me. So work in each one of us, Lord. And, and if you need to speak to us about one or two specific areas in our life tonight, then just do it, Lord. We lay our hearts before you and ask that you speak to us about ways that we've just accommodated sin and unholiness and darkness. And Jesus, we thank you for your victory. It's to you that we look for our life and our victory. In Jesus' name, amen.